ask you to turn to Revelation chapter 19, and I'm going to read verses 1 through 9 from there. The book of Revelation, the revelation of Jesus Christ by uh, John, beginning in verse 1. John says, And after this I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven, crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just, for he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God, who was seated on the throne, saying, Amen, Alleluia. And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Alleluia, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with pure linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. And may the Lord bless our reading from his holy and his inerrant word. The Lord's Supper, which we're about to receive together, was instituted by our Savior in a dark hour. Though none of those present understood just how dark it was at the time, the Lord Jesus did, of course. He referenced at that meal his double betrayal, that of Judas and Peter, the desertion of his disciples in general. He spoke of his own suffering, <coughs> referring to the breaking of his flesh and the shedding of his blood. So he was clearly indicating the darkness that was about to descend on the situation. A brooding darkness was surrounding the Savior and his disciples. But even while it was growing and becoming more threatening, he instituted this meal for us. And he spoke of a brighter day, saying that it should be observed by his disciples until his return. And that indicated two important things. First of all, that after all the tragedy and sorrow to be witnessed and endured over the next few days, he was indeed coming again. And that he would have, secondly, faithful disciples to keep that supper in all ages until he does come, including you and me. If you look for those themes in the familiar words of the institution of the meal, uh, you can see them easily. This is Matthew chapter 26, beginning in verse 20, 
We read that when it was evening, he reclined at the table with the twelve. And as they were eating, he said, Truly I say to you, <coughs> one of you will betray me. Right away, indicating the darkness that's coming. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him, One after another, Is it I, Lord? He answered, He who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes, and it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? He said to him, You have said so. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to the disciples, and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And we know he said elsewhere, My body broken for you. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, <coughs> which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Now right there, you have the two things set side by side. The growing darkness, my blood's going to be shed and poured out for you, but the hope and promise beyond it, I will drink this with you again in the kingdom to come. And so the darkness is there, also the promise of great light. Over the past few weeks, we focused on the agony and the trouble and the sorrow that followed, as well as the triumph of the resurrection from the dead, his resurrection from the dead. And now we're going to come together and eat the supper on the other side of those events and we do so with joy and with thanksgiving even on the Friday night before Resurrection Sunday with his suffering really freshly imprinted on our hearts by the word and the spirit we were not eating this supper and drinking with the, uh, the, the wine with any dread or any uncertainty about what was yet to happen we were eating and drinking, fully knowing that we could sing the resurrection anthem that says, Alleluia, Alleluia, Alleluia. The strife is o'er, the battle done, the victory of life is won, the song of triumph has begun. Alleluia. And so, when it's instituted, none of those things have happened yet. The full darkness has not descended yet. But it does, it follows on the institution of the supper very quickly. But then we come out on the other side, and we're full of joy and thanksgiving and praise to the Lord. Dark and awful as the day of institution was, there were greater and more wonderful things already afoot. And then we don't use that expression much anymore. I really like that expression. Things are afoot. That means they're already on foot happening. They're already coming to realization. Blessings already in the process of unfolding. Great and awesome things in a higher and more glorious plane. So here you are while he's instituting the meal. The darkness is just descending. But even while that darkness is descending, great and blessed and wonderful things are already beginning to develop and unfold. They're already afoot. 
This is hinted at even in the great prophetic picture of his sufferings in Isaiah 53. We're familiar with the opening part of that where it says in Isaiah 53.3, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and is one from whom men, uh, men hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. We're familiar with that part of it that talks about the darkness that was coming and the things that he was going to have to suffer for our sakes. But that passage goes on, and it says this in chapter 53, verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush it. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. So you have this descending judgment coming on the Son for the sins of of the elect but even while that is happening the Savior himself is looking on those who will come and believe and will be a part of his kingdom and the work prospering towards that end is already underway is already coming to pass out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied he will satisfy the, the, the judgment that should fall on the elect. His suffering will make satisfaction for you and me. And as a result of that satisfaction, it opens up the glories and the blessings and, and the joys of redemption and salvation and the imputation of Christ's righteousness to you and all the things that are promised to you in Him. So yes, it's a, it's a, it's a dark and an evil moment when these things are carried out, but by them, Great things are opened up for the believer, for the one who is the Lord's. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many be accounted righteous, including you. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many, and makes intercession for the transgressors. John Calvin explains, Isaiah means that the death of Christ not only can be no hindrance to his having a seed, but will be the cause of his having offspring. That is because by quickening the dead, he will procure a people for himself whom he will afterwards multiply more and more. So do you follow what we're trying to set forth here? When this meal was instituted, the, the, the full impact of the darkness was just descending. But even though that dark day was there, already the blessings that would follow it were afoot. They were already coming to fruition. They were already being developed. They were already coming about. In all that was unfolding, as dark as it appeared at the moment, the will of your God was prospering, 
and all the things necessary to bring you and me to salvation and to give us a place at Christ's table after the resurrection under the gracious standard of the gospel were being accomplished. And we sit and eat and drink at this table that Christ instituted under the banner that says, it is finished. Now when it was instituted, it was just beginning. But we enjoy it under this banner that it is finished. And we do so with repentance and with humility, with the security that our sins are forgiven, and with great thankfulness. All of that brings me to the blessed marriage supper of the Lamb that we read about in Revelation chapter 19. The days before that meal will be, and indeed are, dark and brooding as well. Before you sit down at that table, the whole world will stand in bitter opposition to your God and to his gospel. Satan is yet to have more sway over this world than he has ever had since the days of the flood. Those dark days are before us. Paul wrote of those days in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, in verses 3 through 10. Uh, Mr. Davis referenced some of those days earlier in Sunday school this morning. But in 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 3, Paul says, Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come, that is the day of the resurrection, unless the rebellion comes first, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, and the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now, so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so, until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan, with all power and false signs and wonders. Those days are coming. And within all wicked deception for those who are perishing, because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. As we see wickedness getting a, a grip on our society in times, calling good evil and evil good, and finding not only traction and sanction, but worming its way into our institutions, both public and private, it's easy to forget that dark and awful as the days may seem, there are greater, more wonderful things already afoot. Blessings already in progress and unfolding. Great and awesome things on a higher and more glorious plane. It all is evolving as foreboding as it may appear at any given moment. The will of the Lord is thriving. And all the things necessary to bring you and me 
to full salvation and to give us a place at the great marriage supper of the Lamb are on schedule and falling out toward that great end. It's all happening, just like it was in the dark days before this supper and what happened afterwards for that promised supper the same thing is happening. Dark days are ahead, but already the good things that are promised to us are afoot. As Hinksenberg says, as soon as the enemies of God are cast down, the glorif- glorification of the church breaks forth. So in the moments left to us, let's consider this scene that we're allowed to look on from our future in Revelation chapter 19. Now I'm just going to make three observations and there may be some side thoughts as well. First, notice that this is the loudest and most thunderous noise yet to be heard by John. He struggles to describe to you its volume and its power. It begins with a command from the throne. You read it here in Revelation 19, verses 5 and 6. And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. And I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Or the Lord God omnipotent reigns. David Steele says, All the servants of God are invited, and all appear to respond, a great multitude. This is the most animated of all the examples of praise recorded in this book. And you go back and you read through Revelation and you see all of those occasions when voices are brought together and praises are brought. But this is the one that is most animated. This is the one that is described in, in the most uh, 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 dramatic terms as to, to, to this voice sounding itself to give this cry of hallelujah for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. This voice makes the noise at a Seahawks game seem like a whisper. It does. I've often stood at the Niagara Falls and wondered at the volume of water being thrown over that cliff. And almost anywhere you can hear the roar of the water. Even if you go over on the Canadian side and look at the American Falls, you can hear the roar of the water falling over that falls. It's a constant rumbling that echoes across uh, the river. But it's down at the bottom where you hear the roar the most loudly. So this mighty rumble will fill heaven and earth like the crashing of great waters over a high cataract. That's what John says. He's struggling, don't you see, to, to try to find some way to impress upon you the, the intensity of this cry coming from the Lord's people, small and great. Here in the Northwest, we hear the occasional peal of thunder. But in other parts of the country, those peals can be constant. Uh, 
one after another, rattling windows and echoing in your chest. The description John uses here is of the most forceful type of thunder, the, the sort that makes the earth shake as it peals. And if you've not had the experience of ever being in a storm like that, you, you may have a hard time identifying with it. But if you have, you know just what John is saying here. And he's trying to express it in those terms. It's like this constant rumble of thunder that you can feel even inside of you. So the question is, beloved, what will it be like on that day when you, as believers, stand with the small and the great in this great throng of saints and with a sanctified voice and a heart filled with awe and love shout with all the others hallelujah for the Lord God omnipotent reigns what will it be like to be a part of that voice to be a part of that moment and notice that every soul has a voice. It doesn't matter if you're counted among the small or the great in this world. And that's what I love about the Word of God. You notice it doesn't start with the great and then refer to the small. It starts with the small and then says, oh yeah, I'm the great too. It'll be the voice of the small and the great. You'll be heard in that day. And it will join in thanks to God for salvation, for protection, and for all his sovereign authority. Right now, the voices of the elect are disjointed by age and by time and by place and by circumstance and often despised for all those reasons. That's why unbelievers attempt to dismiss the witness of the aged in their own day. You know, they say, oh, that Christianity, that's just for old people. That's what old people believe. Some even go further and say, that's just what people believed long ago. Back, you know, many ages ago. Modern people don't believe these things. They don't embrace them. They don't hold to them. They seek to make Christianity a matter of culture rather than faith. They say that those were different times when people believed these things. And that's a Western religion. Or that's the white man's religion. They have all kinds of ways of dismissing it and disjoining it. At this hour that we're reading of here, we will all speak with one voice. And rather than sounding like little voices in the wilderness or fools shouting out in the darkness all by ourselves, all that will change. And we will speak with one loud, forceful voice. You, Abraham, David, Daniel, Paul, Peter, Andrew, Luther, Calvin, all of us together, all shouting, the Lord God omnipotent reigns. And the very heavens will shake under the cry of God's people. The second thing to know here is the joy. No matter how dark the days are running up to this supper, all who are his at this moment will be filled with joy. And you have to go back and look at the context. We don't have time this morning to do that. But if you do, you'll see that this is preceded by the story of the fall of Satan and the kingdoms of this world. 
That's all leading up to this moment. In verse 7, what does this great crowd say? Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. There's an interesting play on words here. And uh, it's one of, the, another, one of those great things about the word of God. The great throng of the redeemed here say, let us be at peace and secure. And let us jump up and down with glee for what the Lord has done for us. So the idea is let us sit in quietness because we have nothing to fear. But then we can't because we're so filled with joy and, and so full of love and thankfulness to the Lord. There's no longer any need to pace up and down with anxiety and spend energy and strength and worry. No longer any need to do that. Let us exhaust ourselves instead in joy. And isn't this a little picture of that? This meal that we come to. We don't have to pace up and down and wonder, will our sins be paid for? Will our sins be covered? Will, will our redemption be sealed? It's sealed by the blood of the Lamb. And we come under that banner, it is finished, and we rejoice. We're not worried, we're thankful. We're humbled because we know ourselves to be sinners. But we rejoice in the fact that our sins have been paid for and that work is done. And so we come with joy. It's the same thing here, but even greater joy. In Psalm 16, verse 11, David says, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. This joy that's expressed here is a heavenly joy that will run on in fullness, beloved, forever. No one who knows these pleasures and this joy will ever tire of them. And they will never slacken or be interrupted. Heaven's joys, says Spurgeon, are without measure, mixture, or end. <coughs> Excuse me. And with it will be, we will be determined to give God glory. The honor and the praise and the dignity that he obviously deserves. We try to do that here and now. But we know that our best efforts fall far short of the glory that's due to his name. Even when we're in our best voice, even when we're carried to the borders of heaven by the word and the spirit, the gravity of this world keeps us from reaching the degree of gratitude, that acknowledgement of his holiness and greatness, which is deserved. And before long, it pulls us back to the earth. We can only echo the psalmist as he says in Psalm 89, verses 5 through 8, Let the heavens praise your wonders, O Lord, your faithfulness in the assembly of the holy ones. For who in the skies can be compared to the Lord? Who among the heavens, heavenly beings, is like the Lord? A God greatly to be feared in the counsel of the holy ones and awesome above all who are around him. O Lord God of hosts, who is mighty as you are? O Lord, with your faithfulness all around you. All of you who believe know that this is true about God. But you also know how you struggle to keep that 
as a reality in your mind and your heart and before you. It's a struggle to do it. We know that he has this omnipotent power. We know that there's none like him in heaven or on earth. But we struggle to be able to put words to that and, and to, to feel the full impression of it on our hearts. In this day pictured here, all that struggle is gone. And you will be able to, to feel the full impression of it. And you will be able to express it as it ought to be expressed. And that's why you found the saints here all gathered together saying, let's exalt him together. Let's exalt his name. We can do it now. We're free to do it. We're no longer hampered by those things that have held us back in the past. And then you see why. Because the fullness of all that is promised is about to be accomplished. Why are we filled with joy? Why do we want to exalt the Lord? Why do we cry out with one voice, the Lord God omnipotent reigns? Because the marriage feast of the Lamb is ready. And the bride has made herself ready. And it's all coming together. In Isaiah chapter 25 and verse 2, Isaiah speaks of this day. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wines, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. In the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him, that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Now, we don't want to be carnally minded about these things. Just as this meal here before us this morning, its completeness and its satisfaction and its joy isn't in the elements, but in the spiritual significance and blessing that attends them. So it's going to be then. Think of having your capacity, beloved, for the taste and enjoyment of spiritual things being enlarged, rendered all but limitless, and then having that capacity fully satisfied to overflowing. In Romans 14.7, we read, For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. And that's what we'll have. And the third thing to notice here is the readiness of the bride. This is Christ's work. The readiness of the bride has come by faith, and the work is all Christ's. Paul tells us in Ephesians, that Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. And you, as a part of the bride of Christ, will stay in the presence of God in that state at this moment. And that's what inspires the joy that's what inspires the satisfaction. That's what brings out the desire to exalt and glorify God. 
Notice here, your garments on that day, having been sanctified by him, and having his righteousness imputed to you, you, beloved of the Lord, will be granted fine linen as your wedding garment, bright and pure. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. When the prophet Isaiah thought on this, he was inspired by the Holy Spirit to write this in Isaiah 61, verse 10. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress and as a bride adorns herself with joys. Do you see, beloved, how all the shadows and brooding darkness fade away in the face of this reality? In a short while, all who are in Christ Jesus, just as we sit here and dine together today after the suffering of the Savior, will be made fully ready for the great supper. You will be shouting and singing, dressed in your Savior's righteousness, and ready to sit and enjoy all that's been prepared for you as the bride of Christ. This meal, the one that we're participating in today, foreshadows that one. It foreshadows it. But it's a picture of still greater things to come. No wonder, when you think about what's involved here, no wonder the angel says, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Happy, joyful, secure, content are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. If you have an invitation to this table, you have an invitation to that table, and you are blessed. And don't discount what is said next, because it's the ground in which you can be certain of all this today. That if you have a right to this supper, you will have a place at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Because it is the true word of God. Hingstonbird observed the emphatic assurance given of the truth and credibility of what was spoken implies that here great and glorious things are referred to which run counter to sight and reason. When the church lies prostrate on the ground and the world triumphs, it's indeed hard to believe that the glory of God is yet to find its absolute realization. The whole authority of God is needed to fill it with joyful thoughts of a wedding season. When we see the darkness descending, it's hard. But we put our trust and confidence in the promise and the word of God. 
And he's the one who said, these are the true words of God. This God, Psalm 18, 10, 30 says, this God, or this God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in him. We don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, Paul said, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with, with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. I would encourage you this morning with the words that very soon you and me and all who fear the Lord, small and great, will shout with one thunderous voice, the Lord God omnipotent reigns. And we will recognize that the marriage supper is ready and that we're blessed to have a place at the table. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, these are great and wonderful things. And Lord, we struggle to grasp them with our finite minds. We struggle to rise above the noise and the darkness and the worry of this age. To look beyond and to see what's prepared for us by the Lord Jesus Christ. But Lord, we pray that we would live by faith. And just as we will sit now at this table and rejoice under the banner it is finished, we will look forward to the day when we will sit at the marriage feast of the Lamb and shout the glory of our Lord. Lord, speak of your righteousness and your holiness and your goodness and your mercy and your love. And Lord, do it with a thunderous voice among the saints. And do it with endless joy. Thank you, Father, for preparing these things for us through the work of Christ at Calvary. If there's anyone here this morning who is outside of that hope, we pray, Lord, that you would even now make your word uh, speak to their hearts. That, Lord, they might see um, what lies ahead for those who believe that they might covet having a part in it and Lord cry out for mercy from heaven that they might be invited that they might stand on the other side of this invitation and say why was I invited and do it with humility and love and thanksgiving this is the day of salvation Lord Bring forth your word with power and bless us now as we move.
to our Savior's table. In Jesus' name, amen.